0: Welcome to Read All About It, where we discuss a couple of new novels and look at a classic. My name is Nuri Vitacci and with me is... You see, it's good to be back here. We're going to start with uh, with a book called The Sun is God by Adrian McKinty. Now, this is an unusual novel. Adrian McKinty is quite well known as a crime writer, but um, he decided to take a break and do something uh, completely offbeat, and uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. The Sun is God is... Uh, those four words were reputedly the last deathbed words of J.M. Turner, who, of course, became famous for his pictures of the sky. Uh, And uh, uh, those were his last words in the uh, 1850s. Um, But uh, it's taken as a title uh, because uh, this novel is really remarkable. It's based on a true story, true events, true characters. And um, I think that's going to be our theme today, isn't it? That is sort of, yeah. because we both have books like that. In in 1906, a a German scientist named uh, Augustus uh, Eberhardt uh, decided that uh, he would move off from religion and uh, and find the true essence of life, and so um, he he bought an island in uh, Papua New Guinea, which was then uh, a German colony called. Uh, the Bismarck Archipelago, and uh, so he bought an island, and he set up his own community, which were vegetarian uh, nudists, uh, and that's the histo- And um, there were mysterious deaths at one stage in this uh, community. So that's the the historical background. Um, the actual novel, The Sun Is God, uh, tells the story of. Um, of an Englishman called Will Pryor, who's living in self-imposed exile on a nearby island. He's had a disastrous career in the army, just things didn't work out well, and so he's hiding as a sort of farmer on this small island trying to get his life together. But he reveals to his neighbour that he was in the army. He was a military policeman. Uh So the neighbour, who's German, as, as you know, Papua, as I say, a German community... His neighbour says, "Ah, you are a policeman. I have a job for you. Please help me." So he says, "There's been a mysterious death on this other island, the island of the vegetarian nudists. The island is called uh, Cabacoon, and the, uh, the the vegetarian nudists are called the Cocovores because they live mostly on coconuts." And so Will goes with the German um, sort of sheriff and they go to the island and they they go with a woman called uh, Bessie Pullenberry who's um who's uh, doing some research there and the three of them arrive on this island to find these naked uh, nudist um vegetarians and try and work out what this uh, who caused the death and whether someone can be blamed and whether the rule of law can be can be applied here. Of course, you can immediately see there's, uh, there's a detective story in there.
1: Totally, yeah. This but is exciting.
0: But there's also anthropology in there because um, uh, men, man has returned to a sense of Eden. He's living naked. Mm. He's li- living off fruit and vegetables and, and, and coconuts and um and he's discarded his clothes and of course the immediate uh, titillation is will bessie and will take off their well, clothes of course, too yes. <laughs> yes. so could we have a naked detective so he's a he's the ultimate will is the ultimate Reluctant detective, he doesn't want to do this job. He wants to hide the fact that he was ever a policeman, and uh, he does not want to take off his clothes. Uh, (laughs) But to to uh, our surprise, uh, it's Bessie who takes off her clothes. Always have the girls start, yeah. (laughs) Yes, Yes, girls are often braver than boys in this regard. I I think what's wonderful about this novel is uh, is a uh, McGinty's a wonderful writer. He's uh, he's he's a classic storyteller. He he brings in all these wonderful elements and you're always, um, in this particular book you're stung by the fact that almost everything is true Uh, Will is an invented character but Bessie, uh, Augustus the founder of the community the community itself, the dead bodied um, all that is true and uh, McGinty's done a lot of uh, research Uh, and in fact there's another novel uh, recently been published on the same uh, on the same community and of course, it, we, you can remember uh, bestsellers like *The Beach*. Do you mm-hmm. remember *The Beach*? That's right. yeah. It was a novel, and it was a it was a best-selling novel the about.
1: wasn't it? Twenty
0: yeah. years ago, yeah. yeah, and it was also a, a huge uh, hit as a as a movie. Mm-hmm. I think uh, was that Leonardo DiCaprio, and one of those detail, trendy yes. stars, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, so there does seem to be an archetypal need for this sort of. Uh, desert island story i think so
1: because it's so sort of exotic in a way yeah
0: yeah we're all trying to find uh what is the best way to live i mean i guess i guess buddha was the first person who who said uh, okay the trappings of humanity and possessions and riches that's not the way to uh, to fulfillment the way to fulfillment is to have less and so buddha started this long trek and every religion every cult including science has been looking for this and so our central character here, Engelhardt, is a, is a scientist. Uh, and um, he, uh, he, he, I think, legitimately says that the sun is the source of all energy and therefore uh, we should live un- in the sunlight. because uh, course, we now know that's true. Vitamin D mm, and other things help, yes. come from sunlight. <laughs> Don't want to be in the dark too long like writers are. <laughs> yeah. And we also know that fruit and vegetables are the healthy diet. And we also know that coconut uh, water is the, 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 um, the basic Food group of the of the world, you can um, you can save a, a person's life just with coconut water. It has the exact um, mixture of uh, salt, sugar, and potassium to, to that uh, makes it basically an IV drip. Is coconut, coconut water? Coconut water. Remind me to bring coconuts <laughs> with me the next time I travel.
1: So all the characters are real except for this one invented character that's inserted into a historical. Incident, uh, um, right? uh,
0: yes, well, it's not exactly one. There's, there's a couple of extra okay. characters that happen.
1: This is quite interesting because my book is also a historical novel set in New Guinea, in Papua New Guinea. That's
0: really yeah. amazing because... Um, we kind of
1: chose this by accident, didn't we? <laughs> yeah,
0: actually, that quite often happens on this show, know, isn't it? I know.
1: I think we're sort of in, in sync here.
0: Yeah, or maybe books are, are so full and rich and so full of themes that there's always one major theme that overlaps uh, uh, between the two of us.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Anyway, this is, um, uh, this is a really a book for um, for people who just like a good story. So you don't have to, as so if this is a crime writer, but you don't have to be a crime writing fan to to enjoy this book. We're talking about The Sun is God by Adrian McKinty. Um, it's, a, it's a historical novel. It's based on the truth. So it has that sort of um, extra, uh, to me, it's an extra pull because if you know these things really happen, it actually makes it uh, more interesting. Um, it's also a thriller because the action just picks up and uh, uh, and gets faster and faster. Um, uh, but it's also quite philosophical. Um, you know, it's in this in this book, science becomes a religion, and it's no different from any other cult. That
1: sounds fascinating. Yeah.
0: So, so that's the Sun is God by uh, Adrian McKinty. <laughs>
1: Well, my book is also set in Papua New Guinea, and it's Euphoria by Lily King that just came out last year. And this is set in 1930s New Guinea along the Sepik River. And it's a novel, it's also a scientific novel, about anthropology. And it's basically, it, it actually reimagines an uh, an encounter in the life of the very famous anthropologist Margaret Mead, um, who was with her second husband, Rio Fortune, and they were both working in Papua New Guinea. And they meet this other anthropologist, Gregory Bateson, who... Who then becomes her third husband? Yeah, so you can that. see the beginnings of a love triangle here, which is indeed what the novel does uh, talk about. But it's also kind of a study and record of of how you know the issues around sort of studying. Primitive cultures. Um, There's sort of scholarly and political ramifications of that, and it also explores the ethics of such endeavors because Margaret Mead was quite a controversial figure in her days. You know, the character who's based on Mead um, is a great feminist heroine in fiction. You know, she comes across as professionally liberated and sexually quite daring because, you know, in these sort of primitive tribes or these unknown tribes, hitherto unexplored tribes, their cultural norms are a little different from what we would think of in the so-called civilized world. Um, And I think sometimes when I think about this book, what I really liked about is that it's the depiction of a woman who's, you know, she's at the top of her profession, she's doing such interesting things, and, you know, she's you know, she's got these two lovers, and you know, she's, quite, she's quite in the center of it. Rather like your heroine, who is the one who takes her clothes off, this is the woman who's not afraid to sort of get in there and say, you know, this is the way it is. Okay, so it was a bestseller. It made all the sort of must-read lists of 2014, New York Times, NPR, Time Magazine, Publishers Weekly, Oprah, even Amazon. It was like number 16 of the 100 best in, of Amazon and it's um and it addresses all those issues we're not supposed to talk about in polite society you know sex religion and politics <laughs> so of course right away it's like a really cool book so here's the setup you know um the the, the main char- the, the main characters are Nell Stone who is the Margaret Mead character Skylar Fenwick of Fen who is her husband and Andrew Andy Bankson. and Andy is the one who's actually telling the story. He's actually the protagonist in some ways. Um, You know, Nell is already supposedly quite well-known in her field. She's published this rather daring study, and she talks about the sexual practices of the people in this New Guinea tribe she studies. And her husband, Fen, is still kind of hoping to do his big work. They've been, like, in the field for a little while, and they're a bit disappointed about the tribe, especially Fen. He's very disappointed with the tribe he's been studying. It's sort of dull. And, and Gregory Bankson is supposed to be this anthropologist who's been in the field for many years. And he's like got the super good tribe. Everybody wants to study this tribe, but like he's already like claimed it. Or at least that's the way it's presented in the sort of scholarly, in this world of social sciences of anthropology, which of course, back in the 1930s, that was a fairly new field, which is what sort of makes the book interesting. So Andy's been alone in the, you know, in the field by himself. It's pretty isolated. You know, there's no Internet back then. There's no Wi-Fi. You can't just jump on a Cafe Pacific flight and go back to Hong Kong. You know? um, and, and, you know, he's quite in despair about um, his work. He's feeling like it's not going very well. And, um, and he's, he misses sort of intellectual company, because he only has the natives to talk to. And he does talk to them. He does learn their language. And then along comes Nell and Fen, and he's really excited. First of all, you know, the minute he sees Nell, I mean, he's really attracted to her. You know, he describes her. And, and we, we, we get this in the first-person voice. The book's interesting that way. It's third-person and first-person. It shifts, hmm. you know. But the first person is uh, Bangson. And um, Andy, and um, you know, but he's also excited by Fen because Fen is a rather, you know, he's this Australian and rather, you know, um, outspoken character. and He's got lots of ideas, so you know, he's very excited. He invites them to come and study the tribe with him. He says, "There's plenty of room. We can share it. You know, come <laughs> collaborate." But you know, prior to this, he was on the brink of committing suicide, mm, and yes, and he he has sort of a lot of personal demons in his life. Mm. We we hear about his life, so that's kind of the setup of the book um, you know and Nell she's the really complicated character she's kind of small in size she's actually not terribly suited for life in the mm. wilds. you know she gets sick easily she doesn't eat very much you know and she's just like driven by her work she's like typing typing on their you know clackety typewriter all night And, and um, but she has very high um, sort of ethical standards about mm. how research should be conducted and she's a very different perspective than her husband and Bankson finds uh, that he and Nell kind of are more simpatico, really, you know, and you can sort of see this developing. So you have this love triangle developing. Alongside that, there's this sort of, not exactly a murder mystery, but a, a kind of s- suspenseful, mysterious search that um, Fenn goes on because he wants to go and get um, this particular totem, you mm. know, which he thinks if he brings back will make his name. He wants to really become famous. He's a little bit jealous of his mm. wife. Who's Can I ask you something?
0: In- um, so this is a novel based on uh, on the life of Margaret Mead, the anthropologist. Um, but uh, this is my not know too much about Margaret Mead. Uh, mm. what, did, what is she famous for? Well,
1: in the 30s, she did publish this big work about um, the tribes of New Guinea. And that became, you know, a really hot topic. And then, of course, you know, she was... Shattering the norms of how we believe people lived, you know, because they were much more sexually open, and you know, people didn't run around, you know, they were not, they were in a state of undress that, by sort of puritanical American standards, <laughs> was not acceptable. Um, she later fell out of favor a little bit, but she, you know, you know, she is acknowledged as a very important um, anthropologist in her field, um, and uh, she was quite a feminist, and you know, she she also had. Um, Interesting, such, uh, an interesting sexual history because she had um, sort of lovers who were both men and women, and this comes out in the book. It's it is sort of it sort of parallels Mead's life, but it is a reimagining because um, here was the interesting thing. I read this book. It was so engrossing, and I I couldn't put it down. And at the end of it, it was like, oh, she describes the tribes so well. So she's done an awful lot of research, and you can see in her acknowledgment, she really has. And I thought, I want to go and Google and read about these tribes, only to find out that all the tribes that she describes in the book are invented. They don't really exist. Hmm. They are based on the kind of research Hmm. that Margaret Mead did, but she's made up a whole new set just for the novel, which I, I think is
0: absolutely remarkable. Right. Margaret Mead's is also famous for for that quote that's all over the internet, which is, uh, um, to paraphrase her, uh, people say one person can't change the world, but in fact, that's the only thing that can change the world. In a way, it is. Yeah. She is that one person. She's kind of like other
1: pioneers of her time, mm. you know, whether in, in um, various fields of academia or in, like, flight or, or whatever. It is often one person who's daring enough to go out there. You know, I, I just wanted to share a, a kind of a, there, there were lots of glowing reviews about the book, but this was the review that I thought would kind of hit the nail on the head and was, you know, it was sort of cheeky and fun, but got it. It says, it's as if you're taking the most fascinating anthropology course ever taught. And after class, over drinks, the rule-breaker of a professor tells you what she's been up to with her colleagues. Hot stuff in every way. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, so it, it's actually a very informative and educational book, but it's not, And you know, in, in a way, it's very intellectual. And it, it questioned, it looks at all the moral issues of how anthropology, you know, is conducted and the research that's done. But it's not heavy-going because there's this great, drama, this great story that keeps you going. You want to find out what happens. It is the euphoria of discovery, and that's what gives it the title. So this was Euphoria by Lily King that we've been talking about. Okay, so now we have a classic to
0: talk about, don't we, Nuri? That's right, and uh, t- today's classic is going to be *The Good Earth* by Pearl S. Buck, published in 1931.
1: Yes, we're really rooting around the early part of the century, aren't we? Yeah.
0: And uh, in, and and it, but again, we've got this theme of uh, of uh, a newcomer um, traveling to Asia and having a having an amazing experience here. That. Uh, only in this case, it's not the character in the book that's having an amazing experience. It's the author of the book, exactly. Pearl S. Park, originally from, from the States.
1: Yeah. And she was the daughter of Presbyterian missionaries. And she lived for something like 40 years in China. I mean, uh, well, I think she came back to the U.S. for her education in parts. But she spent a lot of time in China. She did marry a missionary as well. Her that's first husband was. yeah,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And she worked as a missionary uh, uh-huh. for a while herself. So, uh, yeah, she definitely has a good heart. And I think that comes across in her... Definitely, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, The Good Earth is an amazing book, not just because it's a great novel, but it it kind of introduced the rest of the world to, to China. It was almost, a... I mean, Pearl S. Buck was a was a. Dickens Maniac. She read all of yes, Dickens right. continuously. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, she once said that she read the whole of Dickens every year. That's right. And then yeah. repeated it. Uh-huh. Um, but so, so we've got this sort of a very vivid, sympathetic character uh, uh, characterization of Chinese families in, in this story. And it's a really gripping, dramatic story like a Dickens novel. And yet it introduced the rest of the world to, 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 to Chinese life and won the Pulitzer Prize in 1932. It won the Pulitzer and she also won the
1: Nobel Prize in literature which is quite incredible Um, and and she was she was a pioneer in a way she she spoke Chinese she read Chinese she studied Chinese literature and history and she was quite influenced by Chinese literature and felt that the novelist needed to be more populist in a way had to be read by lots of people and she said that her own ambition was not to the beauty of letters or the grace of art but really to be read by people which it definitely was Was. Um, I I often think that in some ways she's kind of like an early TCK, a third culture kid. But she really did uh, live and her experience, the way she wrote, the way she thought, was really between sort of two cultures and two languages Mm. and experiences as well. Because, you know, white people in China back then lived quite differently from the ordinary Chinese people. Uh,
0: that's right. She really gets under the skin. Uh, but let's say something about the story. Mm-hmm. So, um, so uh, the novel begins. It's it's Wang Long's wedding day. It's uh, he's kind of the central. He's kind of the protagonist, and um, uh, he lives near a very family, a uh, very rich and and not very friendly family called the House of Huang, mm-hmm. and. Um, <laughs> And uh, so so our our central character marries uh, a poor woman called Olan, who's basically working as a slave. And um, then opium floods the area, and uh, the House of Huang... Declines, and it's really it's really a bit a bit bit of a soap opera.
1: Oh, totally, yeah.
0: As as he as he marries a woman and then meets another woman, yes, as one does, as one does, of
1: course. Um, But it's also very much that David versus Goliath kind of tale, you know, because um, what the novel does do brilliantly is that it shows us of Chinese peasant life, you know, Um, and it's also a very classic novel of a nation where it's really, there's no middle class yet. It's mostly the rich and the poor and not very much in between. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's um, the poor really sort of indentured slaves to the rich um, and this is their lot in life. And so with that comes this kind of superstitions, the kind of restrictions that they impose, partly through culture and also through poverty on themselves. And I think... um, in the, the novel really sort of has a lot of
0: sympathy mm. for the life of the poor it 's a hard, painful story. Uh, Olan the wife uh, she, she has three sons and three daughters, but um, because of the massive the famine, um, the first daughter is uh, mentally handicapped she doesn 't get right. the right nutrients for her brain to grow, uh, and the second daughter the, the family kills her. <laughs> So uh, well, murder, her, uh, you know, to spare her the misery mm-hmm. of, of, the, of, of life, uh, and to give m- more food for the others. So it's very hard. It's very
1: hard, but story. you can sort of understand the sort of um, decisions that people are forced into because of poverty, because of the lack of any resources to, to improve their lives. Um, I think it's still a very important book today. You know, the book, fell out of favor, just as Pearl Buck did for some years. Um, and she she did get sort of derided and slammed for being sentimental and not sort of literary enough. But, you know, of course, she's had a real resurgence, and The Good Earth has now been republished, and it's all over the place, because there's a lot of real interest in China now. Um, I read it when I was a girl in Hong Kong, and I think As a result, I came to it with very different eyes than, say, a Western reader because this was the 60s and, you know, China was closed and we didn't hear much about Mao and all we did was see all these people fleeing China. And yet Hong Kong was still quite poor then. And I remember as a kid when I read the book, I immediately thought of the new territories and the villages and the people I knew out there. But some of their lives were not unlike. The lives described in here, and I'd never seen this in the book before. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I think she is she is really very authentic. I mean, she's been kind of slammed as cliched, but I sort of think you know she was the origin
0: of the cliché. What are you <laughs> yes. talking about? Yeah. Right. And also, so many books about Asia is our uh, Westerner comes to Asia and interacts oh, with the locals. Right, uh, even even very good ones, like I don't know, River Town, for example, sure, a recent yeah. one. But uh, here we see way back in 1930 that uh, you know she she didn't do the Westerner comes to no. Asia. She had Chinese people as the main characters, as the only characters, and. Um, uh, and she actually tells Chinese history. So you've got the drought, the famine, um, the poverty, the the violence. Uh, so you can actually trace these important events in Chinese history uh, through the the fortunes of Wang Lan, Wang Lung, and, and, his, his, uh, and his his family. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, that is true. Because she and her own family actually lived through the Boxer Rebellion. So she saw quite a lot of the turmoil in China in
0: those years. Mm-hmm. So. And uh, so we're talking about uh, the, uh, the Good Earth by, uh, by Pearl S. Buck, uh, the story of Wang Lung and his family, a hard Dickens-like story of, of, of misery and ultimate uh, humanity triumphing in difficult circumstances.
1: Yeah, a wonderful book, a true classic, I think. So that's all the time we have this week. See you next week on Read All About It. <laughs>